supported for HBO. We've got to deal with that. It's phenomenal. All of our programming from here and from now on will be shown on HBO after the apocalypse. <laughs> Grand Forrester, artistic director, put that deal together. Oh, we're set. I knew you wouldn't laugh. Didn't even bother me. No, I'm serious. I just really wanted to listen to the vowels and the consonants just bounce off each other. <laughs> Welcome to Great Minds, and it's such a joy to have you. Our guest today is uh, my favorite stand-up, Louis Black. And Louis, uh, I, I heard your interview that you did recently with Mark Marin on WTF. I loved it when you were talking about your parents, Sam and Jeanette. Uh, and I know your dad passed fairly recently. Your mom is still alive. I don't know anybody who has parents who lived uh, past 100, both parents, as yours did. I read somewhere that... It was from your parents that that notion of questioning authority, that that really came from them. And I'd love to get your thoughts on them and your thoughts on Sam and Jeanette. Yeah, well, I mean, my mother, was she kind of always, it was always kind of questioning authority. She was a teacher. She'd been, uh, you know, it, she came out of that time frame in which there was that, you know, that, that ceiling that they talk about. So, so I think a lot of that really made her... Uh, you know, crazy in terms of that she just felt like authority. You know, you don't really trust authority until there's a reason to trust authority. So she was teaching, and one of the things, the early stories, that she was teaching in, um, in, a, in an all-black school in Washington, D.C. They had moved out of New York, my mother and father, and moved to D.C. or outside of D.C. And she was teaching there and uh, teaching a math class. It was a segregated school system at that point. So she felt... That one of the ways that, you know, she could A, teach math and also teach really kind of life skills that she felt that would serve in good stead. One of the things she started doing was take him to a Woolworths or a Bibe and Dime and say, you have $10 and you have to buy a whole bunch of articles, whatever, how many that add up to $10. I'm oversimplifying probably. So that's what she would do. And she would find things like that. And they approached her, the folks in charge and said, no, you can't do that. You know, you stay in the classroom and you, here's the math book and that's what you do. And she said, well, no, that's enough. So she literally said, I'm not doing that. This is ridiculous. I'm not going to put up with this and walked away from it. She ended up becoming, out of that experience, a substitute teacher, which allowed her to continue to teach without having to deal with whatever the rules were. So, so she always had that. My father, one of the first things he did was, in terms of my education, was that uh, he was reading and laughing. He would read in the, it dawned on me a while ago that he was, he, my brother and I'd be watching TV, you know, we'd be, you know, junior high or whatever, and or high school, and he would be in the room. We were watching TV. He was reading in the room. I guess to show us that there was options <laughs> besides watching TV. And he was really laughing really hard at this book. And I said, what is, what's the book? He said, it's Catch-22. I said, it's a good book. I, he said, yeah, it's a great book. And he, he, I said, should I read it? He said, yeah. It'll tell you everything. I, I forget exactly how he put it at the time, but it, it basically I, it'll tell you everything you need to know about working in uh, 
in in an office or in a you know in in a regimented society, and uh, so the, those those were the kind of things that they did. And then my father, you know, I, I've written about this a lot and talked about it a lot. My father um, was uh, developed sea mines, which are it's a defensive weapon. It's essentially if boats are trying to come to your harbor and you have these mines that are out there in the water. And that was he, he was a mechanical engineer. My mother had been yelling and screaming about the Vietnam War. She would sit and we'd watch the nightly news with Cronkite and the war was starting and my mother was uh, yelling and screaming about it. That was actually more of her concern than, than really cooking. She didn't like making dinner. She really liked going after uh, what was going on in terms of the war. And uh, so she was a part of the Women's Strike for Peace and the League of Women Voters and all that stuff. She was screaming about this. My father said, you know, you're yelling about this, but you don't know what's your basis for yelling about it. And she said, uh, well, it's immoral. And he said, well, you don't know because they based it on this uh, Gulf of Tonkin resolution. So he, he actually, and it was from the Geneva Accords, this uh, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. He actually said, I'm going to go read it. And then well, I'll tell you what I think when I've read it. And that's, a, I mean, that's unbelievable. So he actually got, it was like a little blue book. It was about this big. Uh, you know, it was uh, about 60, 70 maybe pages. He read the, uh, he read it, which is unbelievable, and finished it. And he said, there is uh, no legal justification for us being in Vietnam. Nothing, nothing in this thing uh, justifies what we're doing. So he basically came out against the war, but he was, he was fine still in terms of building Sea mines is a defensive weapon, but he agreed with my mother. And so, you know, my mother was, you know, thrilled to be right, of course. And um, and it gave me an understanding of, you know, basically kind of I was against it just instinctively. But then it, now I've got my father feeding me facts. And this is early on. Then they, the U.S. mined Haiphong Harbor with my father's, with my, my father's, with the sea mines. So essentially use my father's weapon as an offensive weapon. And at that point, he decided that he would retire from government. And he did at the age of 60, which was unusual, 58, maybe the decision I think was made earlier. And just as my brother was in his like going, my brother would be spending like either his last two years in college. So it was a pretty, you know, gutsy move on their parts. Uh, You know, it, it was an extraordinary, I thought it really had a profound effect on me. And he was an artist also, wasn't he? Well, that's what he did right after that. Uh, he, um, once he retired, he uh, apprenticed to a, stain, to a guy who made stained glass and he started making stained glass pieces uh, and working with this gentleman. And then uh, went from there and started taking the junior college, had free art courses, you know, for uh, seniors, you know, free classes. And he studied uh, with two really fine teachers who became friends of his, he began to paint, which is what he really, I think, always wanted to do anyway. And he, he was a, uh, they call, he was a hard-edged abstractionist, is what he called himself. Which is why, I mean, because it, it, until it took a long time, because I really didn't quite understand my father's work, and uh, and I asked him who his favorite painter was, and his favorite painter was Mondrian which I never quite understood Mondrian, except for the fact that it was interest. You know, it was a certain kind of an interest, but it was not, didn't grab me. And I said, what do you like? And he said his perception of color. So, and design. So it was the design. And then uh, the teacher 
actually did an exhi- exhi- exhibit after my father had, you know, had gone through a number of years and uh, actually was older, decided to do, there was a room big enough, he decided to do an exhibit to show what my father's work was like, where you, because there never was a place, he did some large paintings and uh, there was never a place to put them up. And what he, what essentially he, he showed was that my father's stuff would have been great. He said, uh, the teacher said, if they were on buildings that he was doing really large, larger, the canvases that he was uh, painting for were larger than even the canvases he was on. It was really, they were kind of both remarkable. Mom still is, but uh, Pop was a remarkable man. Fantastic. And somewhere as a young boy, they took you to the theater and that began a lifelong love and uh, an incredibly prolific career as a playwright. Yeah, my father there again, my parents would go to see, that was one of the things that, uh, you know, they, when they lived in New York, they were, they were going to see plays all the time together. And, uh, you know, second balcony was cheap. Uh, and then, uh, and then when they lived in, in Washington, they would, before uh, my brother and I were born, they would go, you know, or even after we were born, I guess they, they would go visit, they would take us up there and they'd go to the theater. Uh, and leave us with my grandparents. And uh, they, uh, you know, they would tell stories. And they were kind of unbelievable that they went to see um, Streetcar Named Desire. And uh, it was with Brando and Jessica Tandy. And uh, they went and they'd read all this stuff about Brando. And uh, they arrived a little late to the curtain and sat down. They watched the first, and the first act comes to an end in my they both sat there and they said, well, you know, he, he, the guy's okay, but he's not. And it turns out it was the night, it was the day that, the night before Brando had kind of broken his hand or busted up his hand in a fight uh, uh, backstage. And uh, so he and Jessica Tandy were not performing. Uh-huh. So, they were that, you know, kind of hip to the fact that they were, that they, they kind of had a sense something was wrong. Um, and so my father started taking me to, uh, he started taking me to plays. Mom would, I, you know, they, we would go to see uh, these plays, the touring plays. They would come, they would go either from uh, Boston, uh, New Haven, D.C., uh, New York, or Washington, Boston, you know, depending on how they were doing the circuit, the Schubert's had a circuit and you'd go and uh, that would, you know, they do three, you know, run of the time, you know, they do these runs in the, the three major cities to kind of, you know, the, 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 the Neil Simon has written books about it, you know, where they work on finishing up the play and my, we went and saw a bunch of those plays together. And then, and then at a certain point he said there was a theater that was opening that had a really great small cast, a number of the people in that, all of the people in that, uh, there was like four or five or six of them in a thing called the Washington Theater Club. And uh, so uh, they, my dad found out about them and they were doing uh, Beckett, Ionesco, uh, Pinter. Uh, and I was about 15, 16. And he goes, uh, we're going to go, let's go see this stuff. So we started going to those plays. And it was life changing. And then when you end up at UNC Chapel Hill, um, you end up 
writing there and being very involved in theater. And also, uh, was it the Cat's Cradle where you performed at college? Yeah, it was. Uh, it's it opened the summer that uh, the summer I. Uh, it was either the summer that I. It, it, I'm, I'm never really quite sure. I think it opened the summer that I graduated school, and I was hanging out there, um, or the summer after. I, uh, you know, it was it was either the summer after I got out of school or the the next summer, uh, when after I, kind of, uh, written this play and uh, that that uh, I'd been I'd gotten a, a fellowship to stay on the right plays. I can't, uh, so I had. Uh, uh, and I had a friend, uh, Charlie Huntley, who uh, who had, uh, I'd worked with. He was in, he had done some we had done stuff together. He was a film he he did films and did was a was a cameraman and uh, still and, and and actually I used to do uh, the Larry Wilmore show when uh, sure. uh, later on. Um, but he had uh, he played in a band. Uh, the, uh, it was the Cross and Reynolds band, and then uh, he. And I kind of would tell these stories and people would say, oh, you're funny. It was one of those things. And there, but there was no place that I wasn't really, this is like 71, 70. And uh, so there wasn't a place down there where people were doing stand up at that point. They were starting to do it in New York and in LA. Uh, and it wasn't something I was going to pursue, but Charlie said, you know, why don't you come down to the club and in between, you know, and the band said, you know, you could kind of do in between. So that was where I started fooling around with it. And Cat's Cradle is still there. Hanging, it's hanging in. If all goes well, it's, it will survive this and continue to be a performing space. But it's, it's been there for, uh, what is it, 70, it's 50 some odd years now. So I've been lucky enough to see you perform many, many times uh, live when we worked together years ago at Pebble Beach, where you were so terrific. And most memorably, I think, when I saw you on Broadway about 10, 12 years ago, you take the stage with such confidence. Do you remember what was going on in your head and in your belly that very first time you took the stage at the Cat's Cradle? Yeah, it was uh, just fear. Um, I didn't realize how much fear it was. It's one thing, uh, you have that sense of, you know, if you're in a, you know, the, the difference I, when I, when I kind of taught the, the experience of standup, not really teaching standup itself, but giving people an idea, here's a, tell a funny story and we'll work on making it seem, you know, an, a, 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 like three minute bit, um, that the difference between being funny, sitting around in a room is one thing, but it's you walking. The 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 comedian is the guy, or the, the the man or the woman who can who can walk the five feet to get up on the stage. So now all of a sudden you're separate, and I didn't realize at the time until I got up there and I went, "Wow!" And it it really uh, the idea of that I'm going to now make these. And I had a lot of friends in the room, and even with that, it was and or people that I knew well. Uh, and and they were all kind of you know and I, at the time I didn't realize when you do this, people are really rooting for you you know but nobody goes into these clubs hoping you, you know except for a few of them and hoping that you suck. Uh, but so uh, it was really in, interesting that uh, it was horrible 
it was, uh, and I actually have, um, I have the, uh, uh, it's sitting in, um, in storage in my uh, kitchen up, if it's still, if the, if the, uh, if the cassette still works, the mini cassette that I recorded and the first minute I say, probably you hear just heavy breathing in six words, maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, it was horrible. And uh, the ending, uh, my, I had a, a really great dog, John, John, this uh, Cocker Spaniel, John John, and he came up on stage while I was just, I was dying. Now I'm just dead. Uh, and nothing is, it's just not going to happen. I'm not even embarrassed. You just kind of watch yourself die. I mean, it's beyond embarrassment. It's death. So I, so I, I picked the dog up and I put him on my lap, and I, which was in a last desperate effort for a laugh because I knew I'd done this before for my friends, and now I've got the dog and I'm holding him. I've got his paws, his uh, you know his his legs are on my leg, and uh, he's kind of sitting up. It's like a ventriloquist dummy, and I said, and this is how a dog masturbates. And I took his little paws and. Uh, he, I had him play with his penis. The, the crowd went wild. So, and that was when I really, maybe, and at that point, I, I thought, you know, maybe I, you know, I, did, I probably should have been a prop act. Oh, man. So, but clearly went well enough to keep trying. You end up back at DuPont Circle at a great place, the Brick Skeller. And, and then ultimately, as playwright in residence and uh, artistic director at the West Bank Cafe. And that seems to have been a seminal time in your career. Well, the one in Washington, the, uh, the Brick Skeller was, uh, was totally just, uh, uh, once again, no uh, clubs in Washington except uh, folk singers and music. And they, but for some reason, this guy wanted comics. So there was me and a guy named Ron Moranian, and I really had no experience. I'd done like 10 or 12 shows. He wanted somebody to come in. I was working for the, the federal government at that point, and I was hanging out at home um, with my, my parents and, and working. And then on the weekend, Thursday, Friday, or Friday and Saturday, I would go down there and do two to three shows without any, uh, I had like, I had sort of an hour. It was basically, I'm working on material because I really didn't. There was no, uh, nobody, uh, but nobody else. I mean, there was no one to talk to about this. I, I had my friends, we would discuss it, but I was really, uh, you know, flying without any instruments. And then, uh, and then eventually I got, uh, after drama school and stuff, I arrived in New York. And, uh, and by that point I had, uh, um, I really was, uh, I had, it was lucky. Uh, it, it's still, you know, hanging in there. It's, uh, it's, it's literally, if, you, if I, if I look out my window, I see the building uh, that uh, the West Bank Cafe is in. My, I can, in my friend's apartment, I can see it, it's Steve Olson who runs it. Uh, and he gave myself, Rand Forrester, uh, who also went to the drama school and Rusty McGee, who, uh, was a terrific composer and was hanging out and really ended up with a smartest one. He ended up with an honorary degree out of the goddamn place without having to pay tuition. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the West Bank Cafe downstairs. Theater Bar Midnight Saturday Street Show. 
right now, I do want to bring up our main man, our master of ceremonies, our resident playwright. His name? Yes, I think a cry went up from the crowd there. <laughs> who is a man who would risk his neck for his brother comic? Who's the cat who won't cop out when there's hecklers all about? He's a complicated Jew and no one understands him but his mother. That can't lose one bad mother. Shut your mouth. I'm talking about the black. We can beat it. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to give you our resident stand up comedy playwright. I'm talking about the man. He uh, he was the composer, so we had a composer, director, and a playwright, and we we worked there for seven, eight years, and uh, had this basement space, and there was no real place in New York City for folks to work. Um, you know, people who wanted to uh, do uh, to, to to act it when he, at that point, if you looked at the box scores, they were like, you know, now you know, well now it's you know before the shutdown. Uh, you know, you, there was, it was tough to be able to find a theater space. You know, you had to wait around. It was like trying to land in, uh, land in Newark, <laughs> you know? So, uh, but, but when we were doing it, it was 1981, 82, it was really, uh, there was like maybe 20 shows. Most theater was dark. If you were a young actor, there was hard to find places to get work. And uh, so we gave that opportunity to anybody who, you know, and people poured in, and the people we got to work with were, were some of the best and the brightest. You know, I, I think most people don't understand what you're talking about, that they really, the discipline, if you will, or the whole genre of stand-up, you know, didn't really exist. And that it came, a lot of it came out of, you know, sort of the folk music clubs and guys like you who said, hey, in between, you can do something or to introduce it. I had a Wavy Gravy on I got a chance to talk to him and he started at the gaslight with Lenny Bruce and yeah. was the first person who brought up you know a young act nobody had ever seen named Bob Dylan and and the role of those types of clubs that scene places like the gaslight you know like where you started I think today you know people don't really know that's what the scene was like it was originally what the scene was like and then it kind of grew into the you know, the improv figured it out and started putting people in the comedy store, uh, you know, in a couple of places. I mean, I was wandering around the city. There were little rooms here and there where there'd be like variety shows. It'd be some couple of singers, a couple of comics, a couple of, you know. And then I actually, when I first got here, I found a space. I always like to find a space and just work it. I, I just wasn't going to go because I was really interested in... Um, trying to get uh, uh, some theater stuff done. So it was trying to find a space where I could do theater. So I'd sneak it in around, you know, singers and whatever else was going on. And But the, the West Bank really gave us a stage. 
Um, and my friend Neil, you know, Steve really was uh, dedicated to. Uh, he tried. He did jazz down. He did music first, and then. Uh, but he really dedicated the space to, you know, gave us this opportunity that was huge. My friend Neil Mazzella, who is the, um, it runs Hudson Scenic, which is the large scene studio here in New York. He, you know, he provided all of the uh, the blacks and the, he uh, fireproof things, made the, you know, kind of helped us with the lighting. And, uh, and we really, it was really kind of, you know, let's put the show on here. And then we, we would basically, um, we just say, you know, you know, uh, come on in. You get you work uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We do a show, at, uh, a play, one play. We do one acts. So somebody do a play, it's like forty five minutes an hour, and then we do a light show, which would be like, you know, we do a show at seven or seven thirty, and then a show at nine thirty, and uh, and do another one. And we just say, you know, uh, bring in, you know, you. We keep it, we're more interested in you getting, you know, you getting seen as an actor. So we want the least amount. We do shows that you don't need a big set, keep it as simple as possible. Um, and they brought in, uh, uh, so we, we uh, so people, real, and then we'd split the door. And then we made a deal and then equity came in and we made a deal with equity. So we were actually an equity house. And we it reached the point where, Somebody could run a show there and not make a, you know, you're not going to make a living, but you, you, you had an, some form of an income from, you know, which is a certain amount of, in the theater, God knows, it gives a certain amount of dignity to the work that you're doing, it, any work that you do where you have an income. And you had some great young people that came through on your watch there. Aaron Sorkin, wasn't he there? And Alan Ball and a lot of people who have gone on to great, great things. It's really kind of remarkable who came through. Richard Dresser, who just uh, uh, wrote a book about uh, it, it, it did happen here is the name of his book. If you're looking for a really, I, it's a, I just, I wrote a blurb for it and uh, Roy Blunt wrote a blurb for it. It's a really, it's a remarkably dark book about, uh, about this time period we've lived through, but it's really well written. He, he's a terrific writer. He did it, Lee, Willie Holtzman, uh, you know, the, the actors galore. I, I always, and then when, when we're done, I'll remember 20 people that I should have mentioned. Uh, who, oh, that's okay. That's okay. And, and Lewis, back then, as you were honing your own act on stage, uh, I've heard you talk about George Carlin and Richard Pryor. And uh, who were some of those early influences that you looked to as you were developing your own voice? My influences comedically were a wide range. It was uh, people I would watch all of the guys on Sullivan. So, uh, so we were talking about the other day one of the guys that always, you know, I got a kick out of that. Uh, the few people really remember Jackie Vernon, who was kind of a very sad, sacky, uh, dry, witty son of a bitch. God, he was funny. First, I would like to say it's a thrill being back on the Ed Sullivan show. In fact, just being in show business is a thrill for me. You see, the reason I got in show business was because I couldn't find a job in my regular line of work. I'm a shepherd. <laughs> now on with the fun. Gosh, I'm lonely. Is there a girl in this audience that would consider being Mrs. Vernon? 
How about you, sir? <laughs> do you know anyone? <laughs> what can you do when you're lonely, introverted, maybe go to a movie now and then? I don't know, movies just aren't good anymore. I saw a movie the other day that was so bad they had a line waiting to get out. You know, the, uh, you know, they bring him one after the other, Jackie Mason, uh, you know, all of those guys, every one of them in a way had some kind of a, in, it was just kind of, I was fascinated by it. I was never drawn to thinking I'd do it. I was mostly fascinated by the fact that someone could do that, you know, that it seemed like, uh, it, seemed, it was more impressive than magic, it was, but it was a magic cat to me. Uh, I have a picture on my wall. It's Shelley uh, Berman on one side. And, uh, somebody did this for me and I'm in the middle and then that they put this together. It's a, a collage of three different photos. Not that we were, we weren't in the same room at the same time. It's Shelley, me and George Carlin. So Shelley influenced me. I got to work with him. Uh, it that was a great out in Colorado, out in uh, uh, Arizona. So it was great to be able to see him, uh, you know, this is like 10 years ago. And so uh, he was quite wonderful. Um, there's, uh, I, I, I spent time talking to George, which was really nice. I, I know his daughter really well. Uh, Kelly, um, uh, Lenny Bruce. I didn't, uh, Lenny Bruce, I got, uh, early on, I got a, a gift of uh, his uh, live at Carnegie Hall. And so at this time, ladies and gentlemen, Lenny Bruce. <laughs> I call it like I was, I was like doing a milking thing, but you know, working Carnegie Hall was like uh, I dig it, you know. It's a f but I had a lot of fantasies with it, you know. Two great fantasies. One, he introduces me, and I come out with a violin, and I just cook it. <laughs> but for an hour, man, every Stravinsky heavy, and I don't say a word. Zugnish and I split, you know. You know what was that, man? I don't know, it's a concert, he played a violin, man. I, he didn't do any bits, no, man. He just swaled his ass with a violin. No, yeah, that, okay. Now, number two fantasy is that, uh, is, this is the 12 o'clock scene. Maybe the people who own this place don't even know we're here. Right? Yeah, you got a guy who's like a, a good corrupt janitor, you know? All right, but don't make no noise and clean up after you finish, right? <laughs> and I kind of had listened to Bruce and he'd had a big effect on, that he, he really touched my head in a lot of ways and uh, um, got to me. And uh, I knew that I couldn't really listen to him until I kind of figured out my own voice because I just thought I'd be doing him. Because <laughs> he's, I just thought he would dominate and, and it was true. I did. It took a long time for me to listen to that album, which I still think is just a remarkable piece of work. Uh, and it was the reason I wanted to work at Carnegie Hall more than it just being Carnegie Hall. Um, it, uh, and then there's, uh, you know, Pryor, Lily Tomlin, uh, Phyllis Diller, um, Bob Newhart, all of them in their own ways kind of cut into, you know, uh, my my parents had a uh, a thing. They, they, they one of the oh yeah, the Nichols in May. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, Paul Kreitzer sure. wrote the Realist. The, his writing 
Uh, I got to meet him later on, he, his, but his, the realist was, had a profound effect. His stuff was just dark and funny and sick and twisted. And um, uh, I, I mean, I have on my wall, he did a, he, he put out this thing of uh, all the Disney characters doing the most perverted stuff imaginable. And you look at it initially and it looks like a normal Disney thing and you look like, and then you go, oh my God, you know, Mickey's shooting up. It's like unbelievable. Uh, it was all this stuff to kind of burst things open and kind of, you know, showed you that, you know, this is the myth. Here's how you explode the myth, you know, and by exploding the myth, the myth becomes, you know, becomes a, you take from it. Once you explode the myth, you actually take from the myth what you should and get rid of the crap. So, so I, I was lucky enough to be influenced by a, a whole variety of folks, I think. So narrative may not be the right word, but but maybe it is. You go back and you tell that story about your mom, you know, and what she was doing with students in Woolworth. And I remember Woolworth because my mom used to go to Woolworth and chock full of nuts. She loved also she used to go to and and challenging authority and then learning from these voices and hearing these voices and reading their words that were also, you know, challenging authority, a little subversive. Um, it all sort of connects and it sounds like the pathway to finding your own voice, that those were sort of key landmarks along that pathway. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, you know, they certainly were, you know, and it was a way, um, and it was a way in which you kind of, uh, I could, uh, deal with authority on a certain level and go after it. Uh, it was also a way that I could, uh, I mean, because part of the reason I kind of ended up uh, going into stand-up in part, or at least doing it, was, it was, besides uh, my fascination, was I could write something and get it up. Because the, the thing that I discovered immediately outside of, one of the reasons I, I liked having my own space was is that we could produce, I could produce my own stuff and people could come in and if it sucked, it sucked, but at least... I was getting it up. If I wasn't, I was waiting around for a year, or two years to see if anybody was going to do it. I wasn't near, you know, I'm in New York, you know, I, uh, so there's, you know, it's, it, it was, you know, I wasn't hooked up with the theater really. So it was, it was always a matter of creating my own space. I always felt that nobody, nobody was going to, uh, pay you to do this kind of thing. You really just had to go do it. Uh, you were really lucky if you're going to get cash. <laughs> so, uh, so it was. So to me, it was the stand-up became. I can I can write something and get it out there. Right, but clearly people started to notice in clubs in the '80s and '90s, and then all of a sudden, Comedy Central calls, and you've got your first special on television about 1998. That must have been. An incredible moment for you. It was. I mean, the the big the big moments were Conan uh, was huge because he started putting me on a lot. We're having a really wonderful summer if you're a gnat. If you're an insect this big and sucks sweat, it's just been a festival out there. And it's just going to get worse because in May, in May everywhere, even in Montreal, it got up to 90 degrees. And that is wrong. Not in May. May is spring. It's supposed to be a transition time. 
If it's 90 degrees in May, you know what that's going to mean. That means in August, it's going to be about 314. <laughs> You're going to come back from work, and the sun will be a foot from your head. You'll be sweating like little pigs. You'll say, i got to get something to drink. You'll go to your refrigerator and open it, and the eggs will be done. And then you'll think back to this night, and you'll say, well, that comic wasn't that funny, but he was a prophet. Uh, the Daily Show, it was a combo pack of stuff that really all came together at one time. I'm tired of the Olympics. I'm tired of the interviews. There's no reason on earth for it. What are they asking these people? If Bob Dole has soul, I'm Tupac Shakur with a bullet. We've got to be the only people who've created a tax form written in our own language that we take to another human being, and we pay them to translate our own language back to us. Halloween in New York is redundant. You know how these guys practice for this insanity? by picking up their kids at school. So maybe our public education sucks and some children go to bed hungry. Is that any reason for me to be a frowny face? I'd have been better off just standing in front of a TV camera peeing in my khaki pants for all the world to see. I'd been wandering around doing these clubs and people were always going, uh, boy, don't you know, how come you, you know, don't you have an agent? No, I didn't have an agent. I had nobody who was paying attention. So, so, uh, but they were, uh, but meanwhile, I had done, before that, I had done, uh, because of the West Bank, I'd been in a couple of movies. I'd been, I'd been in Hannah and Her Sisters because of the West Bank and uh, a few dozen other things. So it kind of got, it, it, it kind of created people. I got to meet people through it uh, and casting people got to know me and uh, uh, I was in front of them a lot. Uh, and so, uh, so the, uh, um, so the, I, I got to do, you know, so it was the, the, you, 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 I do Conan, my friends start running the, the, the daily show of one of the producers is, uh, Hank Gallo, Liz Winstead is a comedian. She's really the creator of the show. The two of them, they need material. One of the, 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 the strong suit that I had at that point was nobody knew me and I had material. I had pounds of material because I was just piling it up. And they knew that I could just kind of go off uh, at that point. It was one of the things that I would do. And then, um, uh, and then you put that together with, uh, and then the, and then Comedy Central gives me the special, and then it just kind of it, it just kind of accrued on itself, and uh, and all of a sudden um, I had a career. All right, my next guest is, of course, a regular on The Daily Show, and you can see him at the Baltimore Improv June 12th through the 15th. Please welcome hilarious man, Louis Black. Well, uh, winter is uh, over. We finally get to spring. And what comes with spring? SARS. You gotta be kidding me. When does the insanity stop? And what are the symptoms of SARS, this potential killer? The exact same as the common cold. Perfect. Now when I get the sniffles, I'm paralyzed with fear. You know, wasn't this winter punishment enough? Huh? When? When is global warming truly going to arrive? <laughs> and I am tired of the windshield factor, okay? Every day, 
it's 28 degrees, but with the wind chill, it's minus seven. Well, you know what? Then it's minus seven. Amazing. And you were on The Daily Show before Jon Stewart. No, yeah, no, I was on the first week of The Daily Show. I've been on since the very beginning. And I love that Trevor Noah still has you on. Yeah, so do I. I just actually did a, 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 a it's funny, I was uh, yeah, doing yours today. The other day I did a, a South African podcast with a, uh, someone who knew Trevor. So that was, but I, I, and I've enjoyed uh, working with Trevor a lot. You know, it's been an interesting ride, that whole. I mean, what's great about that is, in the end, it's been it, it was huge because it's uh, even as I did less, uh, you know, where I wasn't doing it because I initially I was doing it every other week, um, and then I became, and then they kept giving me contracts. They had to kind of up my contracts, so then it became like, well, you, we can't have them on every week, so. But it still works as a uh, a commercial. It's a commercial. From baby's first bath to those toddler temper tantrums. Parents are sharing more about their kids online than ever before. 92% of kids under the age of two already have a digital footprint, meaning photos and personal information about them already exist online. Some call this sharenting. This is when parents actively share their child's digital identity. Wow, sharenting. What fun! I could just share it in my pants right now. <laughs> but that's right. Parents are sharing every stinking, soul-sucking moment of their kids' boring lives. <laughs> Think about it. What do babies do? They shit, they scream, they pass out. <laughs> if I wanted that, I'd go to Mardi Gras. At least there, the boobs aren't for feeding. But turns out sharenting isn't just annoying. It could also ruin your kid's life. Oh, it's it's oh, never, you know, you just always bring it. It's just so funny. I watched the, the last couple that you've been doing on the lockdown, yeah. you know, and I've seen all the old stuff and it, it never misses. So uh, there were so many uh, highlights of your career that we can't go through them all. We'll be here forever. But a couple things jumped out. And most people don't know outside of comedy that the most important, perhaps the biggest comedy festival in the world, it's where I first saw Trevor Noah years ago, actually, um, is in Montreal at Just for Laughs. Yeah. And I know you've been up there a lot. And I read somewhere, and I find this hard to believe, but it seems to be true, that you hosted a couple of times the World Stupidity Awards. Yes, I did. And then uh, they, of course, once again, and I had uh, one of the guys who was my producer, uh, Rory Albanese, was... Uh, worked with me on it and uh, we tried to get, <clears throat> put it together with them. And, uh, you know, the hope was, is we'd have a yearly show and it, you know, it's like, okay, so, you know, and it's too many cooks and it was like, can we do it? No, we've, we've got ideas. All right. Well then, okay. So then you use what, what's, what starts to happen a lot of the times in any business or in any, even in television or any businesses is that, the people who are in charge think that it's important for them to tell you, even though you're the cre creative end of what it is that they want, you know, so they feel that. It, and so, and this was before Netflix and, uh, and HB, you know, before some places just started going, okay, well, you do it, you know, to the creative people. So that, uh, 
so that I spent a lot of time with people like, you know, they were, they were very nice and it was great that we could do it, but it was really like, well, we're going to do it this way. We're screwed. You know, we did, um, uh, I mean, for Comedy Central, we did uh, uh, The Root of All Evil. And, uh, and they wanted us, we did the show, then we did it again. Then they wanted us to, to come in and repitch the show. After the show had been on for, you know, and it was like, no, I'm not, come on. And the guys I was working with, the other two producers, well, we could do that. And I said, no, I'm not doing that. It's insulting and it's demeaning and it's, there's no reason for it. And we know that we already have, we've now evolved the show to the point. Now you're taking us from with the point where we finally figured the show out and you're going to make us, no. Mm-hmm. And we'd have to listen to these phone calls every day where they would give us advice. And it was like, no, you're waiting. We're a half an hour here. Yeah, that, that phenomenon is not unique to your business. That's something that runs rampant through all business. If you're an adult and you're planning to wear a costume on Halloween, don't. I will find you. I will hurt you. I don't know why. It was deemed to be a necessity among a group of adults that for some reason they didn't grow out of uh, childhood. It's not an adult holiday. It's a holiday for children. That's who it's for. I don't even know why we celebrate it in New York. It's a harvest holiday. And we don't harvest shit. (laughs) It's a holiday for children because children want to dress up all the time. And you have to go, nope, this is the night. So shut the fuck up. Your dream of Carnegie Hall comes to fruition. Yeah, that was great. That was fun. It was also two things about Carnegie Hall. One, we're standing backstage with my parents and I want to take a picture with my parents who were backstage at Carnegie Hall so they'll have the picture. And we get the picture done and then they say, the, 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 the Teamsters there who were very brutal go, you know, you can't take pictures back here. You know, this is Carnegie Hall, you can't do that. All right, really? My parents, I can't take pictures. Like, what are we going to do with this? You know, it's very obnoxious. We, I wanted to take, a, I wanted to use the front of the Carnegie Hall as the, uh, you know, or at least a picture of it. And it was a hundred thousand dollars to use. Oh my God. Uh, and uh, the, um, and it's the, it, 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 it is, I, it was, we, we, you know, you go in there, you do it and it was the most, and they will, they will deny this, but it was true for us. The most complaints we ever had about sound and the first time we, where we had to actually return money at Carnegie Hall. The, uh, it, it came out, the, the, uh, the CD came out, you know, we couldn't even, and we couldn't film a, you couldn't film something there. Well, because of the unions? Yeah, because of what it would cost. Yeah, no, it's still crazy. We did uh, the first big comedy thing we did as part of Advertising Week, which is how I make my living, we did it at Jazz at Lincoln Center. Susie opened for Jon Stewart. 
um, in 2005. And we did no production. You know, that's the beauty of comedy. You know, your act, you got a stool, you know, with a couple bottles of water next to you. There's nothing else. There's no production. There's no set. There's, for the most part, nothing. Couldn't be less expensive. And we got banged so hard by the unions. No, it's it's incredible. Yeah. Same thing happened in Nashville. We were going to do uh, at the Ryman, which I love the Ryman. Oh yeah. And I'm not going to. I won't appear there again because they. Uh, we're going to do. A, I do a rant after every show. So we do a live rant that goes throughout the world. It's written by the audience, right? And uh, we we were but the most we're going to make off of it will it will pay. It, it doesn't really pay me, it's, you know, unless there's something that happens somewhere down the road, some insane thing occurs. No, we, there's not a, a profound amount of money, but it's, it's mostly to kind of, it's my TV show, and that was the best I was going to do. It was a live stream that goes out throughout the world, you know, to 15, 20,000 people, like, so I can get seen in, uh, you know, uh, Kenya or, uh, um, Pakistan or, uh, you know, it was great. Um, but they wanted to charge uh, $10,000 or something astronomical. And then it was 5,000 and then they said a thousand. And I said, no, you know, nobody's, no one had ever asked us for money, ever. Mm. Maybe once. And it was, yeah. I said, it was like, okay, well, fine. We don't have, we don't have to do it here. But to, for the Ryman, it was like, I've appeared here three times. You know, we're not trying to screw you. Yeah, it's a beautiful room. I've been there. I've been lucky enough. I actually went on a Tuesday night, Martha White Bluegrass Night, and saw the Osborne Brothers nice. uh, doing Rocky Top. That was fantastic. So uh, given everything that we you know, touched on earlier in your you know, upbringing and your passion for theater and your you know, graduate degree at Yale, I would imagine when you did that run on Broadway at the Richard Rogers about almost 10 years ago, that must have been really something for you. Yeah, it was great. The two, I, two runs on Broadway, both were really uh, great. Um, it was really, a, it, it was a unique opportunity to be able to, to, you know, to be able to walk onto a Broadway stage. I just thought it was extraordinary. How you doing, Mr. Black? How the fuck do you think I'm doing? Check, check, check. Fucking check. Ladies and gentlemen, Lewis Black. That is, that is way too much excitement. <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> I mean, this is all fun for you guys, but I got to fucking work here. That's great. And Lewis, you, you, do, you do so much. You're so, I guess the, the word, it's a trite word, but it's a true word here is prolific. You're constantly touring and writing. Um, I think most people have no sense at all as to what goes in to how you put that material together. I know you love to go down to Carolina and write, but could you take us a little bit behind the curtain and just talk about 
how you put something together before it gets to the stage. The hard, the hard, well, it, nothing really it much happens except that I pick up something, I'll pick up a newspaper like, uh, and read something, you know, uh, or I'll write something down. Um, like I got a phone call if, if I were doing a gig, you know, if I start doing, if we were running, if we were up and running now. So the National Republican Committee called to ask my opinion on something. Uh, and I've, no one has ever, you know, it was a, a what do you call it, a poll. It was, they were taking a poll, one question. And um, the question was, uh, who would be better in terms of dealing with violence in America? Uh, Donald Trump, Michael Pence, and Pence or um, uh, Joe Biden and, um, and Nancy Pelosi. And I said, it's not a legitimate question because Nancy Pelosi is not, you know, she's not involved in this. You know, you've got Mike, you know, you might say, Kamala, why would you use Nancy Pelosi as sincere? So I, you know, so that became, so I thought about that, you know, for a while and that would, that would start me going, you know, I mean, it's like, and I'm kind of getting, and I have to kind of go, you know, I said, no one has ever asked me a question. And this is like, you. this is a setup question. You're using this in a way, I'm not going to tell you, I can tell you what, who I'm against. I can't tell you that I'm for, because that four part is not, you're not giving me a four part. You're giving me an against part. You're not giving me anything for, because, you know, uh, it really, uh, Nancy Pelosi has got nothing to do with this. So you've set up the, you know, so I'm kind of going off and then I would, and then, uh, so I said, that's what I, so get it, get it clearly. I'm against but that doesn't mean I'm for your, the way you've set this up. <laughs> so I kind of, she's well, well uh, and if you'd like to leave a, uh, if you want to give a contribution to the National Republican Committee or whatever it is, the NRCC, whatever that, uh, the, I give us the NRCC, because I kept going, are you, is this real? Where are you? It, it's Salt Lake City in, in, in it, she, I said, in, uh, and, uh, and, and, and I could look this up and you're legitimate. Yes. And, you know, and it is legitimate, but at the whole time, my brain is just going, you know, so I, I would take what I'm giving you is like the, the mishmash and put that together. And then they went, and then the thing that, the thing that kicked it was that, uh, you could, you know, if you wanted to contribute to them to be sure to know that your the contribution was not tax deductible <laughs> we had another little bit of conversation and she repeated that again about the tax deductible and i said is that it sounds like you're a tape why are you telling me this again she said well you know that's we have to do that but i said you've told me this twice now and then she started to tell me again which means i believe that um that they must have been busted because they're repeating it so many times. Because why would you repeat it more than one? I mean, it was just, so that's the kind of way. I mean, I don't think I've very explicitly explained, but those are the elements of the things. Right. Things. No, that was great. Uh, and and then I kind of grab onto them and then I walk on stage because I don't write it. I mean, I don't, this is what I wrote down. NRC phone call, that's it. 
So that's all I do. I'll look at that and I'll remember it. And then I'll start talking about it when I go back on stage. And then it will either, uh, when I'm on stage, I will cut to the chase and try to find something. If I don't, I, I ditch it. And the next day I go on to something else. Uh, I always take notes of things that, uh, the things that irritate me the most are the things that usually are the things that I pursue. Unless it's like a story about my mom. It's like I just saw her and she, she said uh, recently that, um, just when I just saw her the other day, she said, uh, you know, you know, you know, you, uh, you know, you took my, uh, you took, uh, you, you know, you uh, took my mouth and made a living out of it. So, you know, I was like, boy, that's good. You know, it's that kind of, <laughs> really. so, uh. so that's the kind of stuff where it's, you know, those kind of things. So you take a list of that and then I start, you know, and then basically go on stage and start like the, the, um, when the the pandemic, the last special, the, the special that I did, uh, you know, Thanks for Risking Your Life, which was the last show I did, was uh, I walked on stage the first three minutes of the show. I had no idea what I was going to say uh, at all. I just kind of started talking. I mean, a lot of the times that's what I do. And then, uh, uh, and it's, I really needed, I write in front of an audience. Uh, and, they, they, you know, a lot of us do that. And there are a lot like uh, my friend Kathleen Madigan or David Tell who who straight up right. Fantastic. And uh, I just watched a special, Thanks for Risking Your Life, which was great. That was your last show, March 13, uh, right before the lockdown. Before that, for years and years and years, you're a guy that's almost constantly working. You're doing, what, 200 plus gigs a year? Yes, now I'm down to about, about 100. 10, 120, you know. 100, okay, but still quite a few. Is there a particular place or theater? I'm a lo- I am love to look at old theaters. Is there a particular town? I heard you talk in one of the your podcasts, uh, which I love too. You talked about a great, people don't love Sacramento and you love Sacramento. You think it's a great theater there. Are there great towns or theaters that you always look forward to in particular to getting to? Well, Braro is the really good one in um, Santa Barbara because it's a real old, it was built in like 1870. Um, there's one in, uh, God damn. Joliet. The theater in Joliet is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, if I'm remembering this correctly, with a spectacular marble lobby. Unbelievable. Uh, the uh, certain interiors are just uh you know where you just feel like well like the, the Ryman you feel you know anything that's been around forever you feel like you you know you you feel like you're stepping into a warm bath um I love the uh the uh oddly enough it's a it's a it's a, you know the uh, uh the theater in in DC where I did the special was uh, uh the Warner yeah it's a really uh wonderful it's just a great space and then they replicated it in Durham and, and for some reason they're just really solid it's uh, oddly enough the uh, uh, the marquee here uh, which I thought was which is where I did my last Broadway show which I was appearing on Mondays uh, and, and my friend and it was like Jimmy Needlander gave us the, in the and the uh, gave gave us the theater on the dark nights. And I went in with my friend, Neil Mazzella. I said, this theater's too big. This is not going to work. And he said, go stand up in the, uh, uh, 
in the back of the room and he stood on stage and just talked like I'm talking now. And it was crystal clear. And I went, okay, fuck. It's, when you build like that. Uh, right. Uh, when, uh, so there are a lot of really, the, the, the old theaters, a lot of them were built in the 20s. They're really great. A lot of the ones through the Midwest, Waukegan, um, uh, the, uh, the, um, the Pabst, theater is uh, that's that's really great from the state world's greatest backstage ever really unbelievable uh treatment of the artists they, they're just it's spectacular it's uh, they really go way beyond what anybody normally does uh really great music you know they, he's got great vinyl and then every so often at the end they'll give you something from their, you know, we know that you like this and you kind of go, wow, these people are, you know, you're lucky when, when, uh, you know, to be able to play these places, uh, whether they're, whether they're, you know, whether it's like the paps, you know, the way in which you're treated there, or it's just the way the, the, the audience shows up and is respectful of the space that they're in and get the fact that they have a really great theater. Uh, and, uh, I could, I could go on. There's, there's just a, a lot of great theaters in this country, and and the hope, you know, the, you know, I just hope that, uh, that they can get a stimulus package that fucking gets these, keeps these things open because they're if they think that we're going to survive without it, they're they're fucking sadly mistaken. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. Have you been to the Kings in Brooklyn that reopened a couple years ago? I was, uh, it's too, you know, no, I haven't played there. Or, no, I yeah. it's, it's, it is absolutely magnificent. Um, it was closed for 40 some odd years. Yeah. And it was built as one of those original Lowe's, the Wonder Palaces. There were five of them that were built as movie theaters, uh, I think in the 20s, as you said. But that one, I uh, put that one on your list. It, it is absolutely, I've been to, you know, St. Petersburg, Russia, to some of the, you know, stuff built by the czars. And this King's Theater on Flatbush Avenue in Brooklyn is as beautiful as any of them. Um, well, Lewis, I'd love to finish just by talking. Are you doing, I know you do so much work and charity. And um, years ago, we were lucky enough to get to make a contribution uh, to Cystic Fibrosis, an organization that you support when you did that dinner with us with Dave Grohl. Yeah, that was great. Um, and I'd love to talk about the work that you've done. You mentioned Kelly Carlin before about the National Comedy Center in Jamestown. Well, that's great. Yeah, no, that's near and dear. Um, I've worked for a lot of places in my life. I've worked for the Williamstown Theater Festival, which I really loved. And, um, uh, and uh, 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 but the, uh, the National Comedy Center is, uh, Kelly came to me I, well, let's go. In thirty some odd years ago, longer, I uh, appeared um, in uh, uh, what was the uh, first Lucille Ball comedy fest in uh, in a place called Jamestown, New York. Which uh, a friend of mine's uh, uh, was was helping run the festival, and I went up, and I was I was still I was not I was headlining, but not known. And uh, not on, I mean, not on TV. <laughs> so I did it for a few years and then never, then they brought in somebody else to be in charge and then I never went back. And I, but they kept doing it. Friends of mine would go do it and it was great. And it was all about uh, her memory and they would do a festival in honor of her and they would do all sorts of things. And then meanwhile, they were putting together uh, 
museums that were dedicated to her memorabilia. And now it's really extraordinary because it's like uh, sets that they used and the history. You can walk through the thing and basically it's the history of, for people who love Lucille Ball, just that alone, that's in a separate set of buildings. So they kind of established that. She had uh, uh, said along the way that she felt that uh, if they were going to honor her, that they should um, not honor her, but honor, you know, Duke, do something that has to do with comedy that they would forget about her, you know, and that it was really comedy that needed to be um, focused on. There has never been any designated place to honor comedy. And this National Comedy Center is the answer to that. It's one of the most important establishments that we could have on a national level. Comedy is an art form. So somebody who's got an infection through comedy has a place to go. I'm thrilled to be a part of it. When I heard that they were going to build this National Comedy Center, I thought, hasn't someone done this yet? Unbelievable. But I think you picked the right place. Jamestown. Well, you know, they're not going to forget about her. So that's, you know, that, but, but what, but the, the town, um, uh, Kelly got in touch with me and it, it, the town had gotten in touch with her and the, the state of New York, uh, in part due to the economic, uh, they, the state of New York had started to do these things where like in Buffalo and around, if, there, if somebody had some economic ideas, uh, they would put money, you know, they would matching funds to help create things, you know, it might be, uh, I think in Buffalo, a lot of it had to do with the tech industry, and in in uh, uh, in, in um, I don't know exactly where the the idea sprung, except from the festival was just that they let's build a uh, a, a comedy center, uh, and they got in touch with, uh, and they started to do it on their own. I mean, you know, and it was uh, with the help of the state. And they started raising funds. And what really was interesting was is the people from the town were doing it. Uh, and the, a lot of the people who lived in that town and loved that town, and the town had kind of rust belted itself out. It was a, a furniture capital of the, of the state of New York. And it was, uh, uh, it just, it, it was dying. And uh, this was the one thing. And so the, uh, the hope was to create a, uh, a tourist center you know make it a tourist attraction and uh and they found a really great space which was the old train station and um and then they went to cleveland to get these people to to do the interactive part and they started planning it all out and they started having these ideas and then they went to kelly carlin and asked if um if they could uh possibly have george's stuff and and pitched the whole idea to them to her, and then she brought me in with a number of others. And I ended up, I went, uh, my reaction was uh, that if they did half of what they said they were going to do, it was going to be remarkable. And so I started, because I wasn't working at Williamstown anymore due to a variety of reasons, I, I really, and I felt that, I, I, and also because I felt that this was, there was 10 seconds left on the clock in terms of getting something like this done. Because if you didn't get this done, 
and done right, then it, we would be, you know, then there'd be a whole generation that forever would be wandering around the internet trying to paste together the history of comedy, or at least to uh, get a sense of, you know, how the, what the narrative is. And uh, um, I just felt that we had to get it done and put time, energy, and effort along with Kelly and a, a number of other people like, um, and, uh, uh, and uh, <clears throat> there were all, you know, there were all sorts of people who kind of started, you know, recognize, you know, all sorts of comics and uh, God, Alan, I'm like, this is going to drive me nuts. It's White Bell? Yeah, it's White Bell. Alan's White Bell. Yeah. Uh, it, it, Alan became deeply involved. That's how we got to be friends. Uh, Alan, me, uh, Kelly, and, uh, and a number of others who, uh, Jim Gaffigan put put energy and effort into it. And there are people who just started to really kind of come to play and uh, and really pushed it over the, the top. And now it's really an extraordinary, uh, uh, an extraordinary, uh, really, I call it the Library of Congress of Comedy. I mean, it is, I've been, I've taken friends there who, uh, uh, from all who are also all of my friends are kind of pricks when it comes to you know uh, they're um, they're very uh, they're critical and they've all been overwhelmed by it. It's really uh, you could nitpick here and there, but I've never sent anybody there, even people I don't know. And I've said to people when I've been up there in the summer, they go, "Really? Should I go?" I said, you, all right, "Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to I'm around. You know, I'm around." You go, if you don't like it, I'm going to give you the money. And no, and they go, well, I'll see him again. He said, what do you think? Well, we're going back again tomorrow. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a place you can go spend three days in. Uh, it helped create a, uh, between it, you got, you could go up there. I keep saying it's, so you can go up there. You go the National Comedy Center, Niagara Falls, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is an hour away, an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, if they can get, which they're trying to do the train. There used to be uh, a train ran every half hour between Buffalo and Cleveland. Now they're not. So if they can get a train over the like four months to run, but just between Buffalo and Cleveland, if they do that, it would be huge. So. Wow. Great. Well, I, I will definitely, uh, I have to get there. I, I would, I will gladly give you an open golf invitation in exchange for your advice uh, before we go up to Jamestown. Great. Because I would love to, and I must credit you. You when we played years ago in California with my uh, business partner Lance and Benjamin Brewer and your team, and I think Don Felder. We ended up with a five. Yeah. Um, you gave me one of the great lines that I always credit you with every time I say it. As recently as yesterday, which is I've been working at this sport since I'm 15 with no improvement. It's the saddest story in sports. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, the other one was, uh, I've never worked so hard at something with so little improvement. Yes. And I always credit you on both of those. Thank you so much for doing this. I hope it didn't torture you too badly. Oh, it was very good. It was a pleasure. <laughs>